physical reasons you could not read. Um, so I do apologize for that. Um, but appropriately, the title of the sermon is Don't Panic. Um, I, I sat down, I was laughing last week with uh, Brother Anthony Lamb. We were standing up here talking. We were talking about the sermon. And he said, I saw those frogs in this text. And I said, I got to see how he's going to handle those. Um, and, and my response was, well, <laughs> wait until you see next week. <laughs> um, I'll be honest with you all. I, for, for the Revelation being one of my favorite books in the Bible, it's one thing to read it. It's a totally different thing to sit down and preach it. Um, because there are stuff that when you read it, there are things that when you read it, you go, man, that's interesting. I wonder, when that, I wonder what that means and how that's going to shake out. And then you sit down and you preach it, and then you realize all the people saying, I wonder what that means, are sitting on the other side of the pulpit and are waiting on you to tell them. Uh, so I read Revelation 16, verses 17 through uh, 21 <clears throat> this week, and just kind of stared at it for a while. And said, Jesus, what in the world do you want me to do with these verses? Because I almost looked at it, and to begin with, I did not see any application whatsoever. I knew it was there, but it just did not make sense. So I walked around, honestly, looking at this for two days and, and saying, Jesus, I'm going to need you to have to clear this up for me because I don't get it. Yes, pastors don't get the Bible quite often. We have to pray and Jesus has to clear it up, which thankfully he did. And I started looking and started noticing, well, now wait a minute. There's a lot of craziness that happens here. In fact, one of the things that you'll see in here is in the passage that we're going to read today <clears throat> is an earthquake so severe that it literally terraforms the earth. It actually changes the topography of the earth. And everyone is panicking and freaking out and blaspheming and losing their minds except God. Except for Him and His people. They're fine. Y'all, are we God's people if we've given ourselves to Christ? Do you know what one of the greatest witnesses you can give an unbelieving world is peace. Not to panic. Not to panic. Because think about it. From a logical point of view. We just sang, it is well with my soul, right? Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control the Lord hath regarded my helpless estate. Doesn't deny our helpless estate. Okay? Christians are just as helpless in the face of some trials as others. But there's a difference. The Lord has regarded our helpless estate. And has stepped in and shed His own blood for our souls. And then I almost started laughing in the middle of the second hymn 
Because believe it or not, y'all can judge me for this all y'all want. I was not very familiar with this hymn. I was scared I didn't know it until Joyce started playing the music. So she started playing the music, and I thought, like, oh, okay, it's, it's that one. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, spread his praise from shore to shore. How he loveth, ever loveth, changeth never, nevermore. Oh, well, I know God, God was... God had my back yesterday, but what if he doesn't today? Man, I had my quiet time yesterday, but I got out of the house this morning before I have it, so I, I didn't have my quiet time, so clearly God is not going to bless me today because God's stability is based on my stability, right? No, thank, thank him, it's not. It's comforting that God doesn't change. So will he change between the Old Testament and the New Testament? No, he didn't. If he didn't like something in the Old Testament, he doesn't like something in the New Testament. If he's merciful and kind in the New Testament, he's merciful and kind in the Old Testament. He's the same God he always has been. And that is our reason that we don't have to panic. That's the reason that you can have peace. That's the reason that you can show peace to the rest of the world is that God doesn't change so you don't have to panic. So we're going to look at that in three ways today. But before we do that, I want you to stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's word. And we're going to read Revelation chapter 16, verses 17 through 21. <clears throat> then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent, Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. Father, I pray that you would calm us down and keep us from panicking, knowing that you are our stability and our peace. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So don't panic. Easier said than done, right? There are a billion, kajillion, that's a technical term, stimuli every day that tell you you should panic. That you should absolutely 100% lose it. No one has to light your hair on fire. It's already burning. Just run around and scream. You'll fit right in. That's kind of the world that we live in today. Okay? Every time you turn on your television, whatever happened today is the worst thing that's ever happened. Nothing can ever compare to it until tomorrow when a new thing happens. And it is now the worst thing that has ever happened. And it's totally unprecedented and nothing that bad. And it just continues and continues and continues. <clears throat> but scripture tells us we have reason for peace. And first I want us to see that one of the reasons we can have peace is that God still controls the natural world. Now normally I, I go verse by verse. I'm mostly going to do that today. But in this first section I'm going to jump down and grab one more that's not exactly in order. But I think you'll see why. So in verses 17 and 18... Uh, Revelation 16 says that the seventh angel pours out his bowl into the air 
And a loud voice comes out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying it is done. Now, I believe that. It seems simple to me that that would be God's voice. It's coming out of the temple and it's coming from the throne. The temple is God's house and the throne is God's chair. So that's probably God's voice. So he says, it's done. What's done? These bowls were the last of the wrath that God was going to pour out on earth. And you say, well, now, wait a minute. Revelation's got, we got, you know, five more chapters to go when this is done. What do you mean it's done? What do you mean there's no... Well, a lot of what you see in the next couple of chapters all happens kind of in this seventh bowl. You've got a couple of chapters here all the way up through... um, kind of the end of chapter 19, this is all kind of part and parcel of this seventh bowl, plus a couple of signs in the middle that are symbols and things like that, but we'll get to that there. So if you're like, wait a minute, this is the last of God's wrath, we have five chapters left, how does that work? It's kind of inclusive. So pours out the bowl into the air, God's voice comes out of the temple and says it's done, and there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. And then it jumped down to verse 20, and it says, And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. <clears throat> so let's pick this apart. Why is this bowl poured into the air? I thought these judgments were for the earth. Well, for all intents and purposes in this judgment, the air is part of the earth. Because if you look at the effects of this bowl, where are they primarily? They're meteorological, aren't they? Do you ever go home, you go home and you flip on the news at specific times of day to get what information? The weather. And if you're really a weather junkie, you can watch the weather channel. And it's nothing but weather all day long. Or you can pull out your phone and you can open your weather app and you can see maybe you got AccuWeather, maybe you got, you know, whatever. You, you look at your app on your phone and it gives you hyper-local forecasts that the weather where you are within 150 feet is like this. Um, I'm like, okay, that's scarily accurate. I don't know how you know where I'm standing, but that's cool. Um, that we, weather is a big deal for us, right? <laughs> weather affects a lot of things. Weather can affect television, it can affect cell phones, it can affect radio, it can affect, um, this is a heavily agricultural area. If we go long enough without rain, it's a crisis, right? If we go, if it gets really cold at the wrong time of year, that's a crisis. If it gets really hot at the wrong time of year, that is a crisis. People's livelihoods literally rise and fall on what the weather does. It's worthy of our concern because so much of what we do depends on it. And it's also worthy of our concern because of its power when it gets, quote unquote, out of hand. Not that, see, when weather gets out of hand, it hasn't really because it's not ever in our hand. Um, We don't, we, we can control lots of different things. The one thing that we cannot control and have never been able to control is the weather. How do you stop a hurricane? You don't. You run. How do you stop a tornado? You don't. You run. How do you stop a flood? Now, see, I was a youth pastor for five years. I know there's somebody in this room that's going to be like sandbags. 
There's always that one kid that sits in the back that tries to find the one way to, to take your answer and be like, ha, there is a way. Yes, sandbags. But there are not enough sandbags in the world to stop a flood if it gets big enough. Right? Ask those folks back in Genesis. Sandbags didn't help. Flood gets big enough, it'll run over anything in its way. How do you stop rain? Most of the time, we don't want to. Rain's a good thing. Until it doesn't stop. Rain, without stopping, could literally destroy the planet. It has one time. And it's only because of the grace and promise and covenant of God that it has it again. How do you stop lightning? You don't. You can't even run from it. Because you don't know where it's going to go next. And I promise it's faster than you. Weather, by definition, is out of human control. We can track it. We can study it. We can look at it. We can say, well, it usually does this. But you know, during hurricane season, you turn on the TV, you know they always have the cone. They show you where the cone is. And that cone makes you feel comfortable. But really all that cone is, is it says, yeah, it could be somewhere in here. We don't really know. We just think it's probably going to be somewhere in this area. And then you turn on the TV the next day and the cone is like an, an L. And it's going somewhere totally different because the, really they don't know. They don't know. Weather is a terrifying power that we deal with on a daily basis. The bowl also produces the greatest earthquake the earth has ever seen, showing that the effects of this judgment are geological as well as meteorological. I mean, when you look at it down in verse 20, islands disappear and mountains collapse. The topography of the earth is completely upended here. And why are earthquakes so scary? Because the... Anybody ever been on an airplane that wished they didn't have to go on the airplane? Oh, my Lord, have mercy. God did not give me wings. I am not made for the sky. I should not be up there ever. Emily and I had just gotten married, and she's like, Woo, Jamaica, and I'm like, I want to die. <laughs> like, I'm gripping this, these handles on this plane, and I hear the engines rev up. My head's just like this, and she's like, are you going to sleep? Said, That's the last thing I'm doing right now. I am not okay with this. I, every time I've ever been on a plane in my life, I disobey my sermon and I panic. Okay? I, I don't need to be on airplanes. And then as soon as you get off the airplane, what do you do? You step on land and you're like, it's not moving. Because the land is stable, right? It doesn't move. But when it starts moving, all bets are off. That's the one thing that's not supposed to move. Everything else moves. Even when you're hiding from a tornado, where do you go? Midwesterners, I got some of y'all in here. Y'all got storm basements that y'all go under? When a tornado blows through, you get down in the basement, you close the thing. Maybe I've just watched one too many movies. I don't even know if y'all do that. But you get down in there and you close the doors. The ground is comforting as long as it's not moving, right? When the ground starts moving, where do you hide from that? So you can't hide 
from the weather. You can't hide from the ground. Everything is in turmoil. Everything is shaking. Y'all, we live on this planet, but what do you do when this planet becomes unlivable? I'm going to write in big notes right here at the top. It says, don't get political. That's what it says. Y'all, when God made us, He put us in a garden and told us to make the rest of the earth look like the garden He put us in, right? If you go back to Genesis, He says, rule over the earth and subdue it. It's not on your handout. But He creates Adam and Eve. He puts them in the garden. He says, be fruitful, multiply, rule over the earth and subdue it. He creates the Garden of Eden, but then the rest of the earth is wild and untamed. And he says, subdue it. I've given you the model. Make it look like this. Care for the earth and its flourishing have always been a matter of human concern. It's built into us and it's unnatural to suppress it. We're made to be earth's custodians as well as God's image bearers. Any of you who have ever planted a garden or planted a flower just for the sake of the beauty it provides, you're doing something very human. God created you to tend and care for and love the earth. When God created Adam, which by the way is just Hebrew for man, we think of it as a name, but God literally named him human, man. He created him out of the Adamah, the earth. That there's this connection that God builds into us. It's part of our species. It's part of how God made us that we're to care for the earth. That being said, tending the earth and sustaining the earth are two totally different things. Tending the earth is a human responsibility. You can go out into your yard and you can till up the soil, you can plant things, you can water them, you can fertilize them, you can weed them, you can keep the bugs out, you can do all kinds of great things. You can tend it, and you can make it flourish. You say, no, I can't. Yes, you can. With some learning, you can. It's built into you. That's tending the earth. But maintaining its existence and its ability to sustain life, that's somebody else's responsibility. That's God's. Yeah, you can till up that earth and you can plant things in, you, in it you want, all you want. But do you know who is responsible for maintaining the conditions on planet earth that make it possible for life to exist? God. Do you know that if you were one degree closer to the sun right now, this planet is one degree closer to the sun, do you know we would all be incinerated? One degree closer. If we were one degree farther away, do you know what would happen? We'd freeze. I don't understand the people who say this is random happenstance. The earth happens to contain the exact balance of minerals, has the exact temperature, contains the exact elements, and is located in the exact precise position in the solar system for life to exist. Isn't it crazy how chance worked out that way? It's almost like somebody put the planet here and designed it to hold life. 
Ask those people who believe that it was all random chance if when's the last time they won the lottery and they say, oh, I don't play it, the odds are horrible. You're making a bigger bet than that right now, brother. God's responsible for maintaining life. Listen, listen to this. Genesis 8, verses 21 through 22. <clears throat> the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. And the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. Who is it that maintains the livability of the earth? God. God does. 2 Peter 3, 5-7 For this they willfully forget. That by the word of God, the heavens were, as in they came into being, of old. And the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, preserved by the same word, preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Y'all, why does this world continue to exist and support life? Because God wills it to. Why do I remain confident that no matter what I see, when somebody, I'm going to do it, I can't not do it. Whenever somebody tells me, if you don't do this, then the world's going to end in nine years. You need to panic. Panic. The environment's going to collapse. Everything's going to burn. No, it's not. It's not. Because summer's going to continue, and winter's going to continue, and day and day's going to continue, and night's going to continue, seed time's going to continue, and harvest is going to continue, because God runs the world. You say, well, wait a minute, Josh, this is, this is, I don't know. Is, are you really sure this is what, it says, I don't know if this is all that helpful to me. Y'all, listen, there are people in a panic right now because they're convinced that they're going to die if, if we don't save the planet. I'm not mocking that concern. I'm not. I wrote political, I thought, I think it's a silly position as a Christian to say we shouldn't be concerned about the care of the planet. Because isn't that kind of what God designed us to do? Don't make this Republican-Democrat, please. That can all go on out there. And here, this is an embassy of heaven. This is someone else's soil. We're ambassadors for Christ. So let's leave the R and the D alone for a minute and not make the earth and its care and its sustainability an R or a D issue. That you can actually hold both and say that God designed us as humans to care about the flourishing and growth and goodness of the earth that's built into us as human beings. I care about whether or not... I, I, this, is not a, this is not about trash or litter or anything like that. I'm not Captain Planet. I'm not trying to be. I'm saying you can care about the environment 
and at the same time, not lose sleep at night over whether or not your one last use of a plastic straw is going to destroy a biome. There are people actually enduring anxiety about this. And if it's you, I wanted to say, you need to not panic because y'all, God has never given up control of the planet He created. He has never abdicated. He has never left it. The sun comes out because God tells it to. The sun goes down because God tells it to. It rains because God tells it to. It's dry because God tells it to be. Lightning doesn't get to strike without asking His permission. Okay? I am not going to allow myself to panic. And you shouldn't either. Okay? So God still controls the natural world. Nothing's going to happen. It's going to take that out of, his, out of His hands. Second, God still guides the geopolitical world. Look at Revelation 16, 19. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of His wrath. Now John mentions three cities here in the second point. The first one is likely Jerusalem. <clears throat> Let me explain why. Uh, even though it's been designated great, it is differentiated from Babylon. And I can't figure why it would make sense for John to mention Babylon in two separate places, but call it Babylon one time and not Babylon the other. It's also differentiated from the cities of the nations, and that's kind of a biblical method of saying the cities of the Gentiles. Hebrew word would be the goyim, the nations, the Gentiles, the people. So when John says the cities of the nations, he's talking about the Gentile world. And if you've got a great city that is a non-Gentile city, what non-Gentile city is greater than Jerusalem? It seems purely logical to me to say this great city is Jerusalem. We're going to come back to this city in just a minute. Second, cities of the nations. This is not specific, blanket destruction. Nothing else about this is saying other than the cities of the nations fell. God has specific plans for Babylon, wherever that is, but to put this deceptively short phrase in perspective, I want you to think of it this way, because it's easy to gloss over this phrase, the cities of the nations fell. What if instead of this, we got a much more specific regional verse in which God said, I have a special judgment. Let's, uh, I'm, not, I'm just trying to pick cities that we know, okay, to put it in perspective. What if God said, I have special judgment for Washington, D.C., but the other cities of America can fall now? On a scale of 1 to 10, how catastrophic would the destruction be? Yeah, bare minimum 10. Because when you think about it, think about it here. God, has, God says, I have special plans for Babylon. I'm going to deal with Babylon in a minute. But think about cities of the world right now, y'all. Think about New York. Think about London. Think about Paris. Think about Cape Town. Think about L.A. Think about Houston. Sao Paulo. Think, think of all the... Think, think of Toronto. How many millions of people have I just mentioned? Those are all covered under cities of the nations. So to just put it in perspective, just in a quick sentence, 
and the cities of the nations fell. That's widespread destruction on a global scale. In a quick sentence. Almost anticlimactic. Right? You'd expect it to be this bigger, larger thing. Nope, just the cities of the nations fell. And then finally, Great Babylon. Ominously, Babylon is not judged in this verse. It is merely remembered before God for extensive punishment. Babylon's like, whoo, we got away with it. And God said, nope. I'm getting everything else out of the way before I come back around to you. You get special attention. Okay. Now, is this literal Babylon? Whether or not it's called Babylon, there will be a literal city that is the seat of Antichrist power that stands in the tradition of Babylon. So there will be a literal city, whether or not Babylon is its name. Uh, figurative, uh, although... Uh, there is a literal city. Babylon is also a symbol of a corrupt, humanistic vision of the world. And its purpose has existed since the first rebellion at Babel back in Genesis. You don't have to pick between a literal and figurative Babylon here. Um, the city's going to be judged as the epitome of the embodiment of that view of the world. That it is about us. That it is to make our name great. To prevent us from being scattered. To reach the heights of heaven on our own. Without God, we don't need him. We don't want him. And this city embodies that thought perfectly. So God has set it aside specifically for judgment. Now compare Babylon to Jerusalem. If you'll remember a few chapters ago, those of you who were here, Jerusalem has already endured some judgment, hasn't it? In the book of Revelation. This earthquake that happens here in Jerusalem does not actually destroy Jerusalem. It says it's split into three parts, but if you look elsewhere in Scripture, I actually made a note here. Um, see, this is another reason I missed my laptop. I actually have to pull out a, a real book and bring it up here with me. This is John MacArthur. Um, the massive earthquake will split Jerusalem into three parts, beginning a series of geophysical alterations to the city and surrounding region that will conclude when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Zechariah 14, 4-10 describes these changes in detail. The Mount of Olives will be split in two. There will be a new valley running east to west. A spring of water will flow year-round from Jerusalem to the Mediterranean and Dead Seas, causing the desert to blossom like a rose. Jerusalem will be elevated and the surrounding region flattened into a plain. Thus, the purpose of the earthquake as it relates to Jerusalem is not to judge the city, but to enhance it. Jerusalem was judged earlier in the tribulation by an earthquake, which led to the salvation of those who weren't killed. Thus, there is no need for further judgment on that city. The physical changes will prepare Jerusalem for the central role it will play during the millennial kingdom when Christ will reign there as king. So you've got an earthquake that destroys the majority of cities on earth, sets Babylon aside for further destruction, and enhances and exalts the city of Jerusalem, which will be Jesus' seat of power during his earthly reign toward the end of this book. Who is the one person that can stand behind all of this as its, as its cause? Who did this? God did, Right? God did. God chose which cities fell. God so chose which cities are judged. And God chose which city was going to be enhanced. 
When is the last time you have turned on your television to watch the political news and your anxiety and depression level decreased? Recently? At all? Does it make you feel better? If you're honest, when is the last time you looked at the state of global geopolitical play and came away confident that world leaders have this all figured out and can be trusted to protect humanity's future? You can giggle. It's okay. You know, we, we, we know better than that. Why does this fear come from? Where does it come from? Why is it there? A good answer to this exists in how our Constitution's framers built our republic. They sought to take something out of the hands of the royals and give it to the people. What was it? Control. Control. There's no king going to tell us what to do. No queen going to tell us what to do. We've got to vote. We can decide our own future. That's a great idea. But they're still got you. You got votes, but you still got to have what? Elections. And one night this year, oh, I detest having to talk about this. One night this year, this entire country is going to be glued to varying degrees to their televisions, radios, and cell phones, waiting to see who gets what. Control. And I'm going to tell you this now: I'm not a prophet, but I can predict it. No matter who wins. When they do, the other side is going to pronounce it the end of the world. And nothing more disastrous has ever occurred in the history of America. Right? It doesn't matter who wins. The other side is going to say this is an unprecedented catastrophe. Cue anxiety. I've seen people on both sides break down and weep and panic and almost have to seek treatment because of politics. Politics. Y'all, as Christians... Praise God, I haven't voted for Jesus a day in my life because he doesn't need it. Nobody's ever going to vote him out. They tried a couple of chapters. It doesn't work. Y'all listen, you are going to be tested this year. You're going to. Because most, if not all of you, have got some form of social media. And people are going to get mad. And they're going to talk. And they're going to say things against their better judgment. They're going to talk about their neighbors. They're going to talk about their friends. They're going to lump them into categories and they're going to refer to them as those dumb Republicans or those dumb Democrats or those this or those that or those whatever and those this and the Republic's going to fall or the world's going to end and we're panicking and we have to save the world and this is how we do it. We have to elect the right man, woman, boy, girl, dinosaur, whatever it is. We've got to elect. That's how we're going to save the world. Everything depends on this and we as Christians know it doesn't. 
No, it doesn't. Every election will always be the most important election in the history of the world. And do you know what? Jesus says you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. Don't be afraid. I warned you ahead of time. Oh, I'm not looking forward to election day. I'm looking forward for coronation day. I'm looking forward to my king coming back to take what's rightfully his. And it doesn't matter who wins what election. Because the fact of the matter is, we ought to be obeying Jesus no matter who's in office. We ought to be obeying Jesus. You know, I saw a bumper sticker the other day that made me so happy. And you can get them from both sides, okay? You can get one that says Jesus is not a Democrat, dot, 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 or a Republican. You can get one that says Jesus is not a Republican, dot, 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 or a Democrat. Jesus is just king. Kings don't need votes. He doesn't come to take sides. He comes to take over. God can do whatever he wishes with the nations of the world because he's the one who always has and always will truly have control. Romans 13, 1, y'all, this is such a challenging verse. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. I try to be an equal opportunity offender when it comes to politics. My Bible kind of demands it. I'll tell you a story of a guy who came and did a, a prayer workshop actually in our association not too long ago. He said, I, uh, he said, I walked into a church and I walked into their prayer room and found a picture of the president hanging on the wall. And he said, that's, that is fantastic. And they said, well, scripture does say to, uh, Pray for our president. And he said, that's great. Did y'all have one of the previous president up to? They kind of shuffled their feet. Well, no. Oh, so you just decided to obey scripture whenever a president you liked got elected. Y'all, we better be praying for Republican presidents. We better be praying for Democrat presidents. We better be playing, praying for Republican senators. We better be praying for Democrat senators. We better be playing for Republican representatives. We better be praying for Democratic representatives, independents, whatevers. Say, well, Josh, you don't know what, what, what they might do. Do you know who was emperor when Paul wrote Romans? Nero. Do you know that Nero used Christians as fuel for the fire to light his dinner parties after coating them in tar? Did you know that? Alive. Nero was actual. And Paul said, 
Let every soul be subjecting to the subject of the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. Why does God let authority like Nero rule? I don't know. But I know God's good. And I know he's wise and I know he loved me enough to send his son to die for me. And if my obedience to Jesus means my means my respect and prayer and subjection to earthly authority I don't agree with. Well, guess what? That authority is temporary and not just because I can vote for a new one. That authority is temporary because ultimately that that president, uh, potentate, parliamentarian, prime minister, uh Grand Poobah, whoever they are, they've got to die and they've got to stand in front of the king. And when it comes to standing in front of the king, if I'm under the blood of Christ and the one who executed me for being under the blood of Christ is not, I would rather be me standing in front of the king than them. So I can in good conscience say to any elected ruler, I understand that the law says this, but... Acts 4, 18 through 20. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we've seen and heard. Well, Josh, do you know that if the wrong people get in charge, they're going to tell you you can't preach about this in your pulpit? Sure do. Do I care? They can tell me all they want. I mean, I'm not going to preach it. Well, they might lock you up. Emily's a good mom. She'll raise Margaret Wright, and I get to preach in prison. That's the way the Christian life works, y'all. Well, I just want to be allowed to practice my faith in peace. You were never promised that. Obedience has nothing to do with convenience. But man, when I know that the king is on his throne, I can have peace. I can have peace. I don't have to panic. It's possible to care about politics without allowing them to bring you into an existential crisis. It's possible to care about the planet and the state of the environment without allowing it to bring you into an existential crisis. God still rules the world. And then finally, most importantly... God's never changed how he rules his planet. God's never changed how he rules geopolitics. And God has never changed how he honors human moral agency. In Revelation 20, uh, 16, 21, it says, And great hail fell from heaven upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since the plague was exceedingly great. Don't spend too much time on the nature and scope of this hail. It's horrible, but that's not the focus. So wait a minute. Hail the size of a talent? Josh, that's, that's 75-pound hail. The greatest hail on record has ever been, I think, two pounds. There's been two pound hail before. And that was actually catastrophic. This is about, this is 75-ish pounds. Could you imagine a 75-pound hail rock hitting your car? No, <laughs> you probably couldn't. Because it's 37 times larger than the closest hail that's ever fallen to that. 
But the focus on this should be on the complete and utter lack of repentance of these people. It's not even mentioned. It's almost like they don't even have it in them to repent anymore. They have become too calloused. Rather than falling on their faces and begging for mercy, these people choose to shake their fists at the heaven and blame the God who has the power to stop it. Why is God doing this? Isn't this cruel? Isn't this too brutal of a punishment? Why wouldn't He give them a chance? Isn't He a God of mercy? Isn't He the God of second chances, third chances, fourth chances? Yeah, but that's a dangerous game to play. Because God's merciful with sinners, but He's not tolerance of sin. His patience has limits. That's what makes it patience and not tolerance. Y'all, this is the end of chapter 16 in the final book of the Bible. If humanity hasn't had enough time to make its decision by now, It's not going to. They've made their decision. God is just honoring it. How many of y'all like ice cream? Anybody like ice cream? I got excited excited this morning. I'm a shaving nerd, and I like buying exotic shaving soaps and aftershaves, and I got a brand new one for Mama for my birthday late this week, and I put it on this morning, and Margaret said, you smell like ice cream. (laughs) I'm like, okay. She likes ice cream, so I guess that means she likes it. But ice cream. Where are my vanilla people? Anybody? I'm raising my hand in an example. I'm not one of you. <laughs> okay, where are my chocolate people? Yes, Lord. And all God's people sit. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> if I give you a choice between vanilla and chocolate, that's a choice, isn't it? Because if you choose vanilla, you don't get Chocolate. If you choose chocolate, you don't get vanilla. But if I give you a choice between vanilla and vanilla, can you choose between the two? Because if you choose vanilla, you don't get... You've still got vanilla, right? And you can say, well, maybe they're different brands. Maybe they're... Maybe. But if I give you two bowls of the exact same ice cream from the exact same creamery in the exact same flavor in the exact same bowl with the exact same spoon and you pick this one instead of that one, have you really really made a choice? No, because I've given you two of the same thing in front of you. There's There's nothing you miss out on. There's nothing you gain by picking one over the other. God gives us actual, real choices. When God created the world, He put that tree in the middle to give us choice. He said, you can eat from every tree in the garden, but this one tree, if you eat from that, you die. Implicit choice. If you listen to me, you live. If you don't listen to me, you die. If there's not choice, there's no such thing as obedience. If there's not choice, there's no such thing as love. If there's not choice, there's no such thing as good and evil. There's no such thing as right and wrong. For these good things to exist, there had to be choice. So God gave us very real choice. And from the time He gave it to us, He's honored it. But see, we, throughout our history, we have not liked choice. We think we do, and we argue for it all the time, but what we want is not really choice. What we want is our way with no consequences, no opportunity cost. I want to be able to choose vanilla and get chocolate as well. 
I want to be able to choose chocolate without having vanilla. Well, you can't have your cake and eat it too. There are differences in choices. And if you choose to eat from the tree, you've also chosen to die. If you choose not to eat from the tree, you've also chosen to live. You don't get both. You can't get to choose from the tree and to live. It's different. And God has given these people choices. Say, well, wait a minute, Josh, if they can't repent, they don't have a choice. Oh, no, 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 no. See, now you're making assumptions. Now you're you're assuming that God has given us a never-ending choice. Does Scripture ever promise that God has always promised you the ability to choose? Time and again in Scripture, God gives opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after opportunity because He's merciful, He's patient, He's good, but eventually God says, you've had enough. Your decision is now final. Go back. Read Exodus. Read the life of Pharaoh. All the way up until chapter 9. Pharaoh hardened his heart. 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 heart. Chapter 9, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Who made the choice? Pharaoh did. All God did was honor it. All he did was honor it. Because if Pharaoh chose to harden his heart, but then God reached in and goes, "Mm, no. going to let them go anyway and you can just keep on right how you're going. Pharaoh didn't get to make a choice. God wanted Pharaoh to make his choice. And Pharaoh made his choice. You can callous yourself beyond the point of being able to choose. You can callous yourself beyond the point of being able to come to Christ. How do you know if you've reached this point? How do you know if you've reached a point where, where you're, you're, you're so callous to the point where you... Easy. You're not worried about it. You're not worried about anything I'm saying because I'm a crazy, faux, intellectual, religious fanatic who just props himself up on a crutch named Jesus every day, right? If I were just a little bit more educated, I'd know all this is just fairy tales anyway, wouldn't I? You're going to sleep fine tonight because you've made up your mind. This is a figment of imagination and it has been for thousands of years and you know better. There's no God to judge you and no hell to fear. You're just here because you've got to be. You don't want your husband or your wife to know that you're actually faking this. You don't want your mom and dad to know that you're actually faking this. You're just here to keep them off your back. You don't believe any of this. And you don't believe anybody else actually believes it either. You think it's all fake. And you're going to go home and you're going to continue living your life the way you live in it. And you're going to plug your ears and you're going to say, no, 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 no. I'm going to block him out. I'm not going to listen. I'm not going to listen. I'm not going to listen. And then one day you're going to unplug your ears and you're going to convince yourself you're right because you can't hear God calling you anymore. And instead of falling on your face and begging for mercy and saying, Jesus, won't you call me one more time? You're going to let it convince you that you were right. And you can't hear him call because he's not there. 
and you'll live the rest of your life that way, pitying and mourning us stupid Christians. I pray that's not you. And if that's not you, but it's almost you, you know how you can tell that you got another shot? That make you a little bit uncomfortable? That bother you just a little bit? That you want to say it's fairy tales. You want to say it's fake. You want to say it's not real. You would love to lay your head on your pillow at night and go, there's no God, there's no hell, there's no God, there's no hell, there's no God, there's no hell. But there's this little voice in the back of your head going, you know that's wrong. Why don't you consider Just for a minute. Maybe that little voice is right. Maybe God is calling you and giving you one more chance not to harden your heart. You can still hear. You can still respond. And I can't guarantee you that tomorrow you'll hear. Deuteronomy 30, verses 19 and 20. Moses says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life, that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey His voice, that you may cling to Him, for He is your life and the length of your days, and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them. You know, I was putting this on this passage and I want or on this sheet and I just wanted the part that said choose life but I noticed something Thursday when I was finishing this up he says choose him why in verse 20 that you may love him choose him that you may love him that seems backwards Don't you choose somebody because you love them? But Moses says, choose him that you will love him. It's because God loved you first. You don't have it in your natural humanity to love him. Say, well, I don't feel anything. This ain't about feelings. Faith and feelings are not the same thing. But I promise you, if you go, you know what? This world is jacked up. This world is tore up from the floor up. I am a messed up human being. I do need some peace. I don't want to panic about everything that's going on. And God, I can hear you talking. And I don't emotionally have this connection to you yet. But I understand what you're saying. And if you love me enough to call me, I would rather have you than that. I promise you, the emotion will come. Don't wait for emotion. Emotion lies more than it gets it right. But if God's calling you, ooh, buddy, don't wait on that. 